Here's a few exciting scenes from tonight's episode of The Tom Gully Show. Ladies and gentlemen, you've already heard me gush and fawn over our next guest and his accomplishments during the opening of this show to save him the embarrassment and awkwardness. And, of course, we play the dog company interview we did about his previous book, Every D-Day. Please welcome the author of the incredible new book, First Seals, The Untold Story of the Forging of America's Most Elite Unit, Patrick K. O'Donnell. Welcome. Thanks, Tom. They were decades ahead of their time. Combining intelligence and special operations exactly the way it sort of occurred on the, on the Bin Laden raid where he was killed. He's an action hero and himself. Before the war, he raced yachts. He, he was an expert swimmer. And I mean, the most amazing detail was the guy was in the Yukon and a mine collapsed on him in a you know, gold mine and he dug his way out. This guy is the ultimate survivor. And then they had a whole host of cool equipment that, you know, comes right out of a James Bond spy movie. They had inflatable surfboards, floating mattresses. They had something called the Sleeping Beauty, which is a one-man submersible submarine. Um, you name it, these guys were developing it. Uh, if we could talk about Sterling Hayden... I mean, that's the, that is the it's just another more, more every layer of this onion unveils another amazing aspect of this story. You know, famous Hollywood movie star Sterling Hayden was one of these guys that was in the very, very, very beginnings of the maritime unit and actually took on a pseudonym to avoid being Sterling Hayden. Yes, his name was John Hamilton. And. Hayden wanted to, or that was the pseudonym that he came up with. He wanted to be part of the OSS. It's in the lakes of New Jersey, near his hometown, that he test dives this first scuba gear, this rebreather. And it's originally invented in his garage from an old gas mask from World War One, and parts from a bicycle pump, etc. And he develops the, re, the first scuba gear, the rebreather. And it right now is a bunch of old, It's a there's a couple rusted chains and remains of some buildings that are on the, the water near the Potomac, but it's all mostly weeds and infested with mosquitoes and snakes and everything else. But at Area D, they needed a submarine, and there were no submarines to be had. So the OSS improvised, and they came up with a rotting cabin cruiser known as the Maribel, which <laughs> they, they made into a submarine, and they successfully dropped the team, but they misdropped the radio. They think they dropped the radio somewhere in a lake. Oh. And when you're behind the lines in Nazi Germany and you don't have a radio, you're pretty much as good as dead. Taylor is, is tortured by the Gestapo for, for, for about a month, and, uh, and then he is, he is shipped off to Malthausen concentration camp, and he's one of the few Americans that, that survives the camp. It's an extraordinary story. Due to some violent content, parental discretion is advised. It's time, America. Mr. and Mr. North of South American, all the ships at sea, let's go to press. So sit back, buckle in, place your tray table in its upright locked position, and get ready for big time radio, friends. It's time for...
Monday, October 27th, 2014, episode 223. I'm Tom Gully, and tonight on The Tom Gully Show. You know, the first time Patrick K. O'Donnell was on this program, even though I'm one of the biggest fans of The Tom Gully Show, I couldn't really believe he agreed to do it. And that's only because Patrick K. O'Donnell happens to be one of the most recognized authors of military history in the United States. His book, Dog Company, was released to universal praise, and now, for reasons that remain a mystery to me, he once again raised the bar on the Tom Gully Show by talking with us. And this time, it's about a story so amazing, so unbelievable, yet so true and so brilliantly presented uh, about the earliest days of the forging of the Navy SEALs during World War II. It's a dentist that's an adventurer. It's a famous Hollywood movie star. It's an inventor. Uh, I, I can't even tell you how amazing this story is. It's inexplicably, but very, very gratefully, one of the finest American authors working today, regardless of genre. Military historian and author Patrick K. O'Donnell talks about his new book, First Seals, tonight on The Tom Gully Show. Before taking our usual trip to the green room, let's discuss three ways we can all help lengthen the war. Here they are. First, throw away all your extra equipment. Second, don't take care of the equipment and ordnance you have left. Third, waste your field rations. Only eat the parts you like. Well, that's only three ways. But if each and every man and woman in the service indulged in just those three consistently, V-Day would be a far cry indeed. Of course, no, one's, no one would act like that on purpose, but unfortunately, we all tend to treat GI materiel a little bit like a stepsister. And when you multiply your callousness and wastage a million or more times, it's no longer funny. So let's not help lengthen the war. Let's shorten it by conserving everything we have. Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! You're listening to The Tom Gully Show. Ladies and gentlemen, you've already heard me gush and fawn over our next guest and his accomplishments during the opening of the show to save him the embarrassment and awkwardness. And, of course, we play the dog company interview we did about his previous book, Every D-Day, uh, please welcome the author of the incredible new book, First Seals, The Untold Story of the Forging of America's Most Elite Unit, Patrick K. O'Donnell. Welcome. Thanks, Tom. Wow, that's a, that's quite an introduction. I thought only girls uh, gushed and fawned over me. So. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost, I, I'll take it. <laughs> it's almost a man crush, but not quite. Uh, you know, uh, absolutely 
loved Dog Company, and listeners of the show absolutely love it as well. Uh, what led you from Dog Company into the subject matter that you cover in First Seals, being as it was and is a never-before-discussed topic, I mean, in great detail like you have? How did, how did you even find out about it? It began in 2002 when I started interviewing veterans of the OSS. And I wrote a book called Operative Spies and Saboteurs, and it's kind of an oral history of the OSS. And this is one of those tiny stories that I really wanted to tell in great detail. And I never thought I could I really had an opportunity to do that until the Bin Laden raid. And at that time, that was a culmination of everything these first SEALs did. In many ways, these guys from World War II act a lot like their modern counterparts. They were decades ahead of their time, combining intelligence and special operations exactly the way it sort of occurred on the, in the Bin Laden raid where he was killed. Well, I know that that was sort of the genesis of it. Well, interviewing veterans, you've interviewed thousands upon thousands of them and gotten their oral histories down and been responsible for for sort of uh, collecting a lot of those in one spot. Was was the story something that you heard once from one person and then maybe it was legend and lore from another guy that heard of it? Or how did you kind of piece together the thread that makes this story? The um, the veterans themselves, many of them were my close friends. For instance, the guy on the cover of the book, John Booth, was extraordinary guy. He was a national champ- champion swimmer in his high school days, and then the OSS recruited him because of his swimming ability. And this guy pioneered. He was a team leader for most of these OSS operational swimmers or divers. And then after the war, he was the CIA's main guy that led the UDTs in, in, in um, Korea and then continued with CIA. And then what was cool about John Booth is he didn't really kind of have a permanent home in his 80s and 90s. And he just lived with different girlfriends. And every year <laughs> he would just sort of <laughs> drop by for two weeks. And we got to know Uncle John, you know. Oh, wow. <laughs> And his stories were were amazing. And um, John was a ladies' man. He was kind of like a James Bond in a sense, even in his 90s. You know, he saved all of his CIA retirement money for, as he would say, cigars and hotties at the DAV. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> so that, that those were part of the stories. But John only told a little tiny segment with, you know, his kind of war and I was like an archaeologist putting together this mosaic of thousands upon thousands of documents at the National Archives to piece together this story, which has never been told. And it, the, the documents were misplaced, they were in the wrong spot. This was one of the hardest research projects that I ever had to undertake. And it took me years to sift through everything and then put it together in an order that made sense to, to tell the story of these extraordinary individuals. Well, and I would like to stop to pause to point, point this out to people that have never done any library research or any kind of, of true document research or uh, tried to find things in a government archive. The pathway to the more beaten paths is easy 
In other words, if you want to find out things about Pearl Harbor, uh, there's a large collection of them in one place because they have been so often accessed. And to tell a story that's never been told or to be able to relate what we're going to get to next, which is kind of the landscape of intelligence and special forces before uh, the MU, the Maritime Unit, uh, it's, it's like trying to find 10 car parts in 10 unknown barns in 10 different states and put them together. That is a great analogy. And, and that's exactly the way it was with the National Archives records as far as the Maritime Unit. It's scattered all over the place. It's in, it's in the Special Operations section, and then it's in different areas that relate to the missions themselves, different countries. None of it's organized. None of it's cataloged. And it was a, an incredible task of just going. It was like drilling for oil. You know, like one day I'd be like, okay, let's try this section of stuff, these boxes. Maybe I'll get lucky. And it would be dry hole after dry hole. And then suddenly, you know, one box would show up and it was like, wow, this is the the mother load. And, you know, things that would that would click. And then I would realize, wow, there's a boat called the Yankee um, that Sterling Hayden, this famous actor that is, is one of these maritime unit guys. He completely outfitted this this old trawler into a spy craft. And, and then I started to look into what, you know, see if I could find the Yankee, you know, and then sure enough, I found like the maintenance records for the Yankee by accident, you know, just things like that. It was serendipity luck. Um, and then just putting one thing together after another. Well, and putting the hours in, but that's one of the things I love so much about your books is that you can tell some of the detail that you pull out of various documents or even a purchase order uh, are, are amazing. And, w- and we'll get to those later, I guess, as we talk about some of these characters. But the one I remember the most is when when you, you're talking about him, uh, uh, Jack Taylor, who we'll talk about in a second, sort of the leader behind, uh, uh, let's see, what's the A-team analogy? He's the uh, Hannibal Smith of the, <laughs> this, this uh, right. group of people. And uh, he goes right down to the, the scraping the paint off the boat or the ship. I'm sorry if it's the wrong nomenclature. But you, you pull things out, observations of his uh, or, and, and all through this that you, could, you just couldn't have pulled out if you hadn't have hand sifted, you know, a number of documents. This is the, the scrounging aspect of the, of the story in the small details the, the OSS Maritime Unit had no money. They had a vision, and that was about it. And they had to figure out they had to figure out the technology and the tactics based on the vision. And for instance, they they need a seal base, so they created something called Area D, which is located in Smith Point, Maryland, directly across the Potomac River, in you know in, from Quantico, Virginia. And it right now is a bunch of old it's a there's a couple rusted chains and remains of some buildings that are on the the water near the Potomac, but it's all mostly weeds and infested with mosquitoes and snakes and everything else. But at Area D, they needed a submarine, and there were no submarines to be had. So the OSS improvised, and they came up with 
a rotting cabin cruiser known as the Maribelle, which they <laughs> they made into a submarine. And it, you know, I found the purchase orders for the the rehab that Taylor had to do on the engines of the Maribel. And then there was also this like, like handwritten note that I found in the, the file about had to use the putty knife <laughs> to yeah. scrape off the paint. And this is Taylor in his own words. You know, here's an operative that's being sort of pressed into service to fix this Mar- the, the Maribel um, and get it up to speed. But this guy was also an expert tailor, or I mean, an expert sailor. And, um, a world-class adventurer. I mean, the, he's extraordinary. Uh, he's an action hero in himself. Before the war, he raced yachts. He, he was an expert swimmer. And I mean, the most amazing detail was the guy was in the Yukon and a mine collapsed on him in you know gold mine, and he dug his way out. This guy is the ultimate survivor. Well, and in, and in so and, many the, ways. and the thing that struck me about it, I mean, read, I'm reading your book, and uh, we'll just start with Jack Taylor here because I've got all these these great characters listed that are in this book. But uh, I'm reading it, and I, I'm seeing Race Bannon from the old Johnny Quest. You know, I'm I'm in my head. I see this this adventure, and I just have to every now and then remind myself also a dentist. Right. I mean, that was the, 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 the most, you know, interesting little bizarre thing about him is this guy is also a dentist that, that installs, you know, fixes teeth and installs braces uh, is his main occupation. But he's kind of yearning to, to be an adventurer, and um, he gets his wish. He starts out in a very mundane job in World War II. He's like on a destroyer, like fixing teeth. But his, the main contact, the other person that's critical for the maritime unit is this guy named Lieutenant Commander Woolley, H.M. Woolley. And Woolley is a British naval officer that's a liaison officer in Washington, D.C. But before the war, he knew Taylor. And he was a scriptwriter for Paramount. And Taylor and Woolley hung around in the same circles. And when while Bill Donovan, who's the in charge of the OSS, who's an extraordinary character unto himself. I mean, he's the most decorated veteran of World War One. He's a Wall Street lawyer. He's got the vision of understanding the need for special operations forces in America, as well as an intelligence organization, which he is in charge of the OSS. But Donovan has this beautiful knack of picking the right person for the right job. And he picks Woolley to sort of grow an acorn into an oak tree. And he, he says, you know, look, we need, we need, we need seals. We need, which didn't exist at the time. There wasn't anything like it in the world, really. I mean, the Italians had something, but not, not much. And Wooly figures out the vision, which is he wants combat swimmers, but he doesn't have any technology. There's no scuba gear. There's no quote rebreather, which would allow, a diver to reuse the, his, his oxygen and not create this, the telltale traces of, of bubbles underwater. So they, they go to, they first he recruits Jack Taylor as his, one of his first operatives, along with some other guys from the Navy and the Coast Guard. And then they find a young medical student named Christian Lambertson who's been developing scuba. His nickname is later in life is Dr. Scuba. He invents the word, and he also invents the gear. And he invents a rebreather in 1939. And it's in the lakes of New Jersey, 
near his hometown that he test dives this first scuba gear, this rebreather. And it's originally invented in his garage from an old gas mask from World War One, and parts from a bicycle pump, etc. And he develops the, re, the first scuba gear, the rebreather. And the OSS then continues to enhance it and develop it. And this thing was used all the way up until the 1980s in different versions and models by the Green Berets and the Navy SEALs. Well, that's just yet another... I mean, this book is so amazing. Uh, we start with this Jack Taylor character uh, being tasked to, to just make this stuff happen. And when you think of the military, particularly the military during World War II, a lot of people, I guess from movies and whatnot, think it's, it's, it's incredibly rigid. There's no real imagination being used in terms, I mean, it's all just go do the... And I am struck at every turn at the way... Jack Taylor was so entrepreneurial about the maritime unit. I mean, he basically was just given the ability to freelance or took the opportunity to freelance and just started making things happen. It was like, okay, this is an obstacle. And he approached the whole thing kind of like an operative would. Hey, this is the obstacle in front of me. How can I solve this problem? Uh, just an amazing character at every single, at every single step of the, of the journey and, and frankly, the whole rebreather story could be a story in and of itself, and you tell it so well. The, the, the tales of the, of the guy actually, I mean, come on, somebody had to test this thing, and what if it doesn't work? Well, it's, you know, it's not the most undangerous thing in the world uh, to test these things um, in live. Who was the first guy that went, okay, I'll take this live underneath a submarine and do a real mission with it? Because that— it was it was Taylor that, that tests the first rebreather mm -hmm. in the Shoreham Hotel in Washington, D.C. It's in the middle of the, the winter, um, well, the beginning of the winter, in November, and they, they post guards to the, 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 the outside of the indoor pool uh, at the Shoreham Hotel. And Taylor and Lambertson and Woolley um, basically go underwater in the pool, and they swim back and forth. He's, Taylor swims back and forth and tests the test the gear and then, and then he does it again at Santa Monica in in California to test it test a, a version of it in, um, in saltwater to see how it works and this goes on for months because this is not only it's top secret equipment I mean they had sort of the secrecy behind the rebreather is the same kind of secrecy that they had with the atomic bomb it was extremely um, uh, Everything was classified. They they put, posted armed guards around the equipment. Uh, nobody could really handle it other than the OSS guys and the inventor. And then they had to test it and, and smooth out all the burrs. You know, this is, they didn't even have, I mean, they were barely using swim fins at this time. And it was mm -hmm. the OSS that pioneered that also. And they they started to incorporate a face mask with the rebreather. They came up with uh, underwater watches that had luminous dials, depth gauges. And then they had a whole host of cool equipment that, you know, comes right out of a James Bond spy movie. They had inflatable surfboards, floating mattresses. They had something called the sleeping beauty, which is a one man submersible submarine. Um, you name it, these guys were developing it. And uh, that was this this whole 
that was the innovative aspects of the of the uh the maritime unit and then they started to come up with how they conducted these operations which were 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 very unique and unusual they they came up with the first plans to parachute into um an operation with their scuba gear on um, this is way before, I mean, this is way before the 1960s when the, the actual Navy SEAL did this type of stuff. These guys came up with these concepts. And then they were they were combining uh, these special operations with intelligence gathering and then running agents behind the lines, everything else. Well, that, it, ahead of their time. Yeah, that's it's the amazing part of it is that, you know, uh, training soldiers and things, would, you know, had been done for, you know, centuries. Uh, but in, at least in the United States, the concept of why don't we train a secret agent to be that special forces guy that can actually get somewhere and make something happen in that area rather than having to rely upon a whole, a whole troop of men uh, to do that. And I just am, am fascinated at the way that your book, uh, in a granular fashion, shows how, well, this was the first mission they went on. They did this, the second mission. But these were men who were used to uh, <laughs> running their own ships, so to speak, but kind of taking life by the horns and doing what they wished. Uh, if we could talk about Sterling Hayden, I mean, that's, that is the, it's just another more, more, every layer of this onion unveils another amazing aspect of this story. You know, famous Hollywood movie star Sterling Hayden was one of these guys that was in the very, very, very beginnings of the maritime unit and actually took on a pseudonym to avoid being Sterling Hayden. Yes, his name was John Hamilton. And Hayden wanted to, or that was the pseudonym that he came up with. He wanted to be part of the OSS. And, and first what he did is he actually joined the Marine Corps and... Um, went through that and then the Donovan picked him up for, uh, for service in the OSS and he, and he wanted to remain kind of as incognito as possible. I mean, even though when he, he showed up, he, people were like, you know, I've seen you before. Are you a famous football player? <laughs> he just kind of would laugh it off. This guy was his philosophy on life. I mean, his, just shunning material things. He kind of, he kind of is very, kind of had a, a sense of understanding of the world that, you know, comes with life experiences. And there's a lot we can, I think we can learn from Hayden. I, I love, I love this guy. I mean, he's, he's very self-actualized is probably the term that yeah. I want to use. Yeah, <laughs> definitely switched to the on. max. Yeah, he's yeah. he's uh, on steroids, man. Because he, even in the movies, he's this sort of you know super tough guy, and and uh, you know you know can strike a match on the side of his face and all that. And then in in his real life, his his view of the world and the idea that hey, you know what, this movie star thing I do, basically I'm not real crazy about it, but it pays very well and it allows me to get on my boat and that's the thing I love about all these guys too is they were they were just extremely gifted uh you know sailors before they started this and loved being on a boat and and uh Sterling Hayden just wanted to sail the world that's you know it, that's why I'm a movie star thanks 
just an, an incredibly unforgettable uh, character. And the idea that he was in the very beginnings of the Navy SEALs and uh, out, you know, in charge of his own missions is, is something the average person probably just would not be able to, you know, comprehend. In today's world, everything is so structured and closely monitored and, and watched. I mean, you have a, many people are sort of homogenous. They come through the ranks. These guys were real Renaissance men that were willing to break all the, the rules and the molds. I mean, they, to create something unique, and, that, and that's exactly what was needed for the time. They, otherwise, none of it would have ever been done. I mean, they had to, they had to invent it all, and, and a lot of times with no money, no funding, and, and overnight. They were, you know, a race against time in many cases, against the, the Germans or the Italians, which also had uh, programs, but not quite as... They were, they were different in many ways, uh, but they were trying to, to, to somehow catch up to some of the, the Italian accomplishments, especially. Well, the, um, the whole idea, these men of action is really what they were. They were total men of action. And the thing, I guess, that is a, you know, older person, you know, decades and decades after these guys, and I mean this, this greatest generation group in general, I think is all this way, they didn't get caught up with any fault or all whatsoever. It's just such a simple, this is our objective, this is what we need to do. Um, the guy in charge, Taylor, didn't turn and say, who's our expert at this that I can have do this thing I need done? Huh, he just went and did it himself. Did it himself and then had this sort of adrenaline junkie kind of mentality where, you know, he was, he couldn't stand being behind a desk. This guy was a man of action. He was hands on in all of his missions, many of them solo. I mean, he spent in one mission, he spent, uh, I think, four or five months behind the lines nearly by himself in a country in Albania where he had no real knowledge of the, the language he taught himself while he was there and then sort of made, was able to navigate behind the lines. I mean, it's extraordinary. And then he worked directly with the, one of the main um, insurgent groups in Albania. And, you know, I found this, it was a, it was a classified record that had only been declassified in, I think, 2004 or maybe it was even later, 2007, but it was buried in this, this box in the wrong spot and it was about the letter that he, he, he pulled from this partisan leader a complete list of what they were trying to achieve and that went directly to the President of the United States through the State Department. Wow. <laughs> that he delivered. Well, and he, he was tortured for... On a mission that was by accident kind of. It was like, it was a blown mission. The guy got trapped on the beach because they couldn't bring him out because they, the Germans had brought in a bunch of machine guns and stuff. So he's like, all right, fine, I'll just go inland. He goes inland, and he goes into the mountains of Albania, and he's on this, like, four-month odyssey, like, dodging German patrols and living with the insurgents and and then, you know, basically contacting their, their very leader of one of the groups who gives him this letter this to the president. Well, he's uh, tortured by the Gestapo at one point, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, which is never fun. That's on the that's on the final mission, and um, John, 
you know, like I said, Jack Taylor was constantly always wanting to one up himself in many ways and couldn't stand a chairborne command. And he was given the opportunity to lead the deepest mission into the Third Reich at the time, when, and this is in October 1944. And he is—he doesn't really have a very good grasp of German, but he's going to lead a group of deserter volunteers. This is kind of a unique aspect of the OSS. There was there weren't enough um, American agents that could speak German or pass as as German spies. So what they did is they would go into prisoner of war camps and they would locate willing candidates that they could turn into agents. And these are guys that were former German soldiers. Many of them had been like socialists or communists, but they were drafted into the German army. So they already kind of had an ax to grind with the German army in one way or another. Right. And they would, they would they would recruit these guys to become OSS agents. And Jack Taylor, it's extraordinary. He leads a team of three of these guys that are just a, an interesting set of characters into themselves. One guy's a complete philanderer. He's constantly, like, going in. You know, he's constantly a womanizer and stuff. Um, you know, other, other guy's a very straight-laced kind of officer type. And then there's another guy that's just nothing nothing special, but... One guy completely idolizes Taylor. The others are just not quite sure. They, they, he idolizes him because he finds out that Taylor's probably the OSS's most experienced operative behind the lines. And then they they, tro- they drop in to, to Austria into a, an area that's heavily industrialized, and they're trying to develop something called the South Wall, which is a belt of fortifications in the southern part of Austria, the Third Reich. Taylor's mission is to to find out what's going on in in the factory areas as well as check out the south wall. And they drop on Friday the 13th in October 1944 into the the heart of the Third Reich. And um, the the, the air crew is a bunch of Poles who are free Poles. The, The Polish... Armed forces had collapsed after 1939, but a lot of guys had kind of found their way to England or France and then over to England in one way or another, and they reconstituted kind of a small air force. And a lot of these guys were, were responsible for flying missions, and they dropped Taylor's team called DuPont into the heart of Austria. And they successfully dropped the team, but they misdropped the radio. They think they dropped the radio somewhere in a lake. And when you're behind the lines in Nazi Germany and you don't have a radio, you're pretty much as good as dead. Yeah. And that's that was the problem. They waited around for another day, hoping that the crew would re- drop another radio. And meanwhile, they're dodging German patrols that had some, you know, seen the plane, parachutes, etc. And um, they're hiding in houses and stuff. And uh, and then for the next two months, Jack Taylor and his team. Uh, hide in different houses and elements of the team have contacts in various towns and they they stay in safe houses etc but they're never really the Gestapo and the SS are never too far behind so they're constantly moving around and then you have an x-factor you have this philandering (laughs) member of the team (laughs) that blows the entire mission by like taking a gold, his gold coins that were used for 
you know, basically for an emergency, and he bought a diamond ring, and he gave a ring to one of the local German Fräuleins, and the SS wasn't far behind. Yeah. And they raided, they raided the barn that the team was staying in, and they seized the team members, and they they began beating Jack Taylor and everybody else. These guys were in super, in extreme peril because they were they were traitors. I mean, yeah. They were traitors to the German to the German homeland. They were traitors to the Third Reich. So the the, the penalty for traitors was to be beheaded, and that was where that they were eventually. That was what the the, the punishment would have been for all of them. And uh, well, anyways, the Taylor is is tortured by the Gestapo for 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 about a month, and uh, and then he is he is shipped off to Malthausen concentration camp, and he's one of the few Americans that that survives the camp. It's an extraordinary story. Wow, yeah, a month of and, the, and then the the the, the 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 most amazing part. I couldn't believe it that the, the three deserter volunteers somehow get away too. And it's like they were put in a bowling alley that was sort of made into kind of a, a small prison. And these guys tunneled their way out somehow and then walked from Austria all the way to Italy and got back. <laughs> this, I'm telling you, this book, if it's not made into a movie, uh, it, it could be a mini series. Every single tiny facet of this story that you have brought to light has its own amazing. I I I, I would have read this if it was a fiction book, but it all happens to be a hundred percent true. Uh, it it's just well. Let's take the opening of your book. I can't tell you what a shocking surprise the the very opening let's say two three pages of your book were to me and how much fun they were to read not only from the standpoint it was just engaging writing but i'm reading i mean i checked the cover after the first paragraph i i went am, am i reading a book on the untold story of the forging of america's most elite uh unit can you talk a little bit about the italians and and that opening scene which is just i just i still can't believe it chapter one is um, the setting is December 19, 1941, in the waters outside Alexandria Harbor. And the British fleet for the eastern portion of the Mediterranean is based in Alexandria. They have several large battleships, um, as well as a bunch of tankers and other support ships. But this is the main base for the, the fleet med. And the Italian Navy is not... They have several battleships, but they're not that strong, so they can't go on a head-to-head fight. So what they do is something, they use asymmetric warfare. They, they come up with an entire set of tactics and to, to somehow tackle these battleships. And what they do is they, they bring in a submarine near, near Alexandria, and then these Italians, they ride on human torpedoes. They're, they're torpedoes that are... They're they're specially outfitted so that they could be driven by these these divers basically, and they they ride on the surface of the water from from the submarine. I mean, it's kind of cool. the The commander of this group is called the Black Prince because he's actually an Italian prince, and his name is Borghese, but his nickname is the Black Prince. 
and he organizes and plans the mission as well as the the entire unit, which is called Decima Mas, or the Tenth Flotilla. And these guys, six of the the swimmers or divers, if you will, they 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 go out of the submarine, out of the hatches, and they're still submerged, and they bring the torpedoes out. Before they go out, this guy gives them this ceremonial kick in the ass. Uh, I to, love to that. Complete the mission. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They take they take stimulants like uh, I'm not quite sure speed or something, and they get into the water on the underwater in these torpedoes, and they ride. At first, they ride on the surface, and then as they get closer to Alexandria, they can see kind of the lights off into the distance and all these battleships and everything else. And then they submerge. They have um, they have their own kind of breathing kind of apparatus. It's not like the OSS. It's only a single type pipe, which allows them to not stand in water very long. But they they find a way to to navigate all these underwater obstructions. There's there's torpedo nets because the 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 British kind of have a sense that they're coming. So they they fortify Alexandria. They put torpedo nets around, and then they even they have a bunch of guys riding around in motorboats, and they throw hand grenades out, <laughs> kind of wow. like miniature death charges to hopefully, <laughs> if there's anybody down there, they're going to nail them. Yeah. And these guys are like underwater, and they're like they're enduring all these death charges from the grenades and stuff. And one of their suits gets gets like opened up on one of the obstructions, and icy seawater starts flooding in. They they take apart the front end of the the human torpedo that they they had driven and they they pulled out uh, an explosive nose cone, which they then um, attach magnetically to the bottom of one of the, of the, several of the ships, including two of the battleships. And then what happens is um, the depth charges get so bad, and then also one of the the breathing devices that they have and fails and these guys are forced to surface and they, they kind of surface behind a buoy and the the guys on top of the battleship notice them and then they start to spray it with machine gun fire and these guys surrender even but they, they, they planted the charges mm-hmm. and they surrender to the battleship that they planted the charges on and the captain is like look we know you guys did something where are the charges and they they refuse to answer the question. So the captain puts them in the hall right down where they put the charges. <laughs> Figuring, well, okay, fine. You know, you're, you're going to suffer the same fate as we are. And what happens is like 10 minutes before the charges go off, they alert the captain that there's an, a pending explosion. And the captain orders all hands to the top of the deck, and um, the battleship blows up. Two of the battleships blow up, and they sink in Alexandria Harbor in shallow waters. There's a tanker that, that goes off. Several of the other teams, they, they actually escape, um, and they're inside the port facility, and their cover was that they were going to be basically um, sailors that were from the area and that they were going to you know, just basically make their way through the checkpoints and get into areas that were controlled by the Africa Corps and the Italian Navy, or in the Italian Army at the time, in, in deep in Africa. But they're held up. They use the wrong money on one occasion. And the plan is, is, is basically, I mean, they're, they're, their escape is foiled. Um, but it changes, this small operation changes the entire balance of power in the Eastern Mediterranean because 
The British now are out two main battleships and several support ships. So the um, the, the Italian Navy then sort of is effectively dominating that area through this the action of six men. Mm-hmm. And at this point, this sets off an entire underwater arms race where the world's powers like Britain and the United States, who have no programs like this, where they're in their infancy, they want to suddenly catch up to these Italian uh, frogmen. And that's where we have like Jack Taylor enter the scene as well as Admiral Woolley. And these guys, um, they have to develop all this stuff um, on their own, mostly. I mean, there's there's influence from the Italians, but it's mostly there's, you know, there's no sharing of this equipment because this equipment hasn't been captured necessarily. Um, and then they have to they have to develop it. They have to come up with the, their own tactics. Well, the, and the and then, Italians, of course, important because the conventional warfare mindset of that era um, didn't account necessarily for a guy swimming in, planning a charge. And, and what a, uh, not necessarily cost-effective, but what a, from a manpower standpoint, what a great way to, you know, affect change in warfare. It's just, as you say, none of the technology and really... Um, the sophistication of strategy and stuff beyond just, you know, the regular spy techniques that have been used since the beginning of time um, hadn't really been pioneered. And it's and it's amazing to me, as you as you touched upon earlier, the, the kind of like the number of things George Washington did that all presidents to this day now do because, you know, it's something he established and that's now the tradition more so in a binding, applicable way, these guys at the very start of the Navy SEALs and the Maritime Unit, I was I was stunned at how quickly they had uh, illuminated uh, watches and depth gauges and all all of these things uh, from a, even a technological standpoint. But the uh, nature of, as you say, somebody going behind the lines and having the next step already figured out. Uh, was not immediately apparent to me in thinking of of those times. Now, and then the other, the, the tour de force, if you will, as far as ideas go, and then completely out of the box, is you have these Italians that are developing all this stuff. The OSS comes up with the plan, okay, we can sort of beat them, but why not have them join us? Yes. <laughs> and yes. they bring in, when, when Italy changes sides during the war, half of Decima Mas, basically fights for the allies the other half fights for the nazis and these guys are incorporated into the oss and along with it is all of the technology that the the italians developed in their tactics which then become part of the oss maritime unit as well and then are eventually uh all of this stuff is later adopted by the navy seals in a modern warfare the Decima Moss group, uh, do you have any opinion on which of the two sides of the war benefited the most from the Decima Moss joining them? Oh, that's hard to say. I mean, I think the Decima Moss, we definitely had a, we definitely were very, uh, we're, we, it was a windfall for us because these commando um these operatives from, from Decima Moss and specifically something called the San Marco Battalion were extremely effective. These, they, were, they had about 50 guys that were incredibly daring. There was one mission in particular that, that changed the course of the war. They, they, they brought out, there was 
in Italy, there was a number of defensive lines that the, the entire Italian um, peninsula was was heavily fortified by the Germans. It was not the soft underbelly that Winston Churchill said it would be. Instead, it was this incredibly tough gut that they the Italian the the Allies and their armies had to fight up every mountain chain, and the Germans. Def- put defensive line after defensive line, you know, made of concrete pillboxes. They would submerge the turrets of tanks in these things. They had hundreds of thousands of mines and barbed wire and every, it would just take months to clear each one of these hurdles. And then there'd be another one behind it. But the, uh, the San Marco guys and specifically the OSS had one operation where they, 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 they found the Italian engineer that had designed most of the line and they brought him out. They, 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 it was a snatch and grab kind of mission where they, they brought a high value target out of deep behind the lines. And, and this guy provided all the plans of the entire line and they used those plans and his knowledge to, to, to effect a breakthrough by the eighth army, which was part of the British army at the time. Wow. That it's just, like I said, every turn of the page, you're going, no, that, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. Yeah, they did. You turn the page. Another one. Uh, you mentioned that the, uh, bin Laden raid, uh, kind of triggered you a little bit. What, what elements of, uh, if you can go down a list then what elements of that bin Laden raid kind of have their roots in, uh, you know, the old maritime unit? wasn't quite well the big one late was a for me jack taylor was an obsession i first found jack taylor's story in 2002 and i always wanted to tell that story and i had been gathering a story and and i, and I think the the, the bin Laden rate sort of crystallized things a little bit for me in the sense that well here's here's a way that people might understand the maritime unit and especially jack taylor's story i got gotcha. you so that was the, um, there was a little bit of a crystallization uh, at that point, but this is something that I had been, I found Jack's story in, in a box, and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. this. This is the guy, he was talking about in his report that he had wrote after the war, how he built the crematorium at, at Malthausen. And it was like brick by brick with guys that were being executed left and right every day and his name was on the death list too and um i just wow i always said to myself this is a story that i need to tell yeah it is the story is uh vividly told as as other people have said it's history that reads like fiction because you feel like you're there the descriptions are so um, vivid is the only word I can use. Hey, one guy that I, I plucked out of this story that I just, I kind of want your take on is, uh, and I, I hope I pronounced his last name correctly, because again, this is one of those tales of, of these people of this era. Gordy Soltow? <laughs> the toe. I, really, I mean, this is the guy, this is a great story that here is a guy that is a professional football player that the OSS recruits. And after the war, he becomes the all-time greatest kicker for the San Francisco 49ers. There's even a Gordy Saltow day. <laughs> if you look that up, he's still alive. And he's, he's one of the few that are left of this incredible group of men. And he's, 
extraordinary. He he's part of the operational swimmers. The the these the the, for the men that that Jack Taylor pioneers. Taylor comes up with another along with another guy that the need for teams of of divers or swimmers or comet swimmers, whatever you want to call them, for seals. And and he's he's brought in as because he was an expert swimmer as well and a great athlete and a very smart guy too. And Saltow is first detailed on something called L Group, which is the London Group, and they're sent over to England and they they train in the icy waters of the Channel. And the icy waters are the problem, basically. The equipment freezes up and and guys are suffering from hypothermia and everything else. They have this really unbelievable kind of mission called Operation Betty. It's got, you know, probably the most mundane name possible, but (laughs) the the plan is to to destroy the sub-petent doors at Lorraine, and these are where the Nazis have their U-boats in France, and they're going to destroy the, these massive metal doors that that protect the subpens. The pens are impervious to Allied bombers. I mean, the bombers plaster this area left and right, but the pens are so they're they're embedded in reinforced concrete, and, and U-boats can operate at will and without any fear of of being bombed by the Allies. So they come up with a plan to use the swimmers to to plan explosive charges on these metal these massive steel doors right before d-day because they want to get they don't want to have the subs come out and sink right (laughs) sink the allied fleet um but the like so many of these interesting missions it's sort of scrubbed at the last minute and um and gordy is sent over to the pacific um and Conducts operations in and around the the Indian Indian Ocean and Sumatra in Indonesia now, and um, he's he's involved in the last swimmer operation of World War II, where they, you know, so OSS is sort of politically incorrect. I mean, yeah. beyond beyond belief. I mean, they're they're the ends justify the means, and what they actually do is they they conduct missions in and around Indonesia, and they find these these fishermen and uh in, in in some cases they actually just kidnap these guys and say look you're going to become an an agent <laughs> <laughs> and that's what they did they had a they they organized a team of these guys they, they trained them for six months after they kidnapped them and then they sent them back into sumatra to to, to conduct an intelligence on the on the japanese and what happened is the, the team went in and they were never heard from again so they sent uh, Salto and, and other swimmers from the maritime unit in to find him. And uh, this is called Caprice 5. The mission is named that. And uh, they they covertly go in by sub and rubber raft, and then they land, and they look all over the island. And, and Salto, is, it's incredible. He, he goes in the... In the, into the small rivers in the jungle that are infested by the Japanese and actually swims with just a K-bar knife as on a reconnaissance mission alone in front of the group to find out if it's safe. Wow. <laughs> this is stuff that the guy deserves at least a silver star 
for his uh, his efforts there. It's, it's quite incredible. Oh, without question, and and uh, he and also... it's just a lost story of World War Two. Yeah, he because also he's the typical you know he's a typical World War Two veteran. He didn't brag about his stuff. He right. didn't um, you know he didn't need a reality show. He just kind of went about his business after the war and became a great kicker. Well, the NFL's leading scorer in uh, 52 and 53, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I don't see Al Del Greco going behind enemy lines anytime soon. Uh, The diminutive former kicker for the, well, one of the Houston franchise. Anyway, uh, I also enjoyed the story of how they they went after the, uh, not went after, but but they enlisted the uh, help of, rather than say, we're going to check the entire nation for talented swimmers, they actually just said, well, um, all these awesome swimmers who are pretty much swimming in the exact conditions we need them to be swimming in are in Southern California. And they are, for lack of a better term, gym rats or surf rats. I mean, they, they won't come out of the water. That's what we need. Why should we look anywhere else but there first? I love this part of the story. It's like California surfers are, are brought in and it's like <laughs> Jim Eubanks, who I got to know pretty well, who was one of these national champion swimmers. And he was also a coast guard or I mean a lifeguard on the beaches of Malibu. You know, he, he, he as he put it perfectly, we had Bay, Baywatch minus the babes. <laughs> yeah. 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 He said we had a ship named Baywatch, but that was about it. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was funny. I mean, that's the, but these, these guys, um, those California surfers were way ahead of their time in the sense that they were using face masks and swim fins. And, you know, just as for comparison, the UDT guys that were also part of the Navy, they didn't even use fins or face masks. The OSS introduced that to them. They were using tennis shoes. So, I mean, they, they didn't even know about the rebreather thing. They dismissed that out of hand. I mean, it's it's quite interesting. And then there's, of course, many of these maritime unit guys do become part of another the UDT-10 group. But that's another story of the in the book. But, yeah, the, the, the California surfer angle is quite interesting and, and compelling. Okay. Now, what – when did you first – get the burning desire to start writing about military history. I mean, when, when did you say, okay, I'm going to be the rock star military history writer guy. I mean, uh, were you a child? Were you in college? What made you start to voraciously attack these, you know, subjects of information? I kind of was, born into this stuff i mean I, yeah i don't know how to explain it i had my first like gi joe when i was three i was watching combat when i was four uh-huh. and obsessed i had a library of like 600 books when i was eight whoa and it just kind of went on and on and i mean i was i was obsessed with it i mean I, i'll never forget i had a, a teacher in seventh grade and i was drawing i was drawing tanks i mean i drew american tanks or sixth grade, it might have been, and I, you know, I was drawing like these elaborate tanks. I was, I had always had a World War II book in my hand, 
it was it was kind of bizarre. She she it was an embarrassing moment too because I'll never forget. She went in front of everybody in the class and she goes, you know, every year there's one kid that's obsessed with Adolf Hitler, and she goes, and that kid is right over here. Oh no! And I go. Oh, hold on, Mrs. O'Donoghue. You got this all wrong. I am not into Adolf Hitler one bit. I'm into American history. And, uh, in, you, know, you know, she recanted that. But it was just like <laughs> everybody that knows me knows that this is something I've been into since I was in first grade or younger. And um, it just sort of grew and morphed from there. Um, when I got out of college... I would just spend every weekend and I'd interview these guys and nobody was doing it at the time. This is before it became kind of in, you know, Vogue or whatever you want to say, or before saving private Ryan, before band of brothers, I worked right. on band of brothers, but, um, this was my, uh, my interest. And I did it just because nobody else was doing it because I thought it had to be done because these guys were just like, even then they were dying. And the stories would just kind of go to the grave. And I wanted to preserve it. I wanted to sort of gather the history. And that's that was it. That's what my whole all of my books are about. It's about it's about it's about preserving American history. It's about preserving history in general. Um, and getting people. It's about the story. The story is the story. I'd say. And um, you know, maybe sometimes I'm hoping that it inspires other people to talk to their own relatives because it's like the real rock star is. Know, maybe your uncle next door sure you don't even know anything about and i was you know that was those were my inspirations these veterans were my inspirations and, I, and i'll never forget they're like yeah, god pat you've interviewed like 700 of us you know what what are you going to do with all that stuff and then i started putting it on the internet um i had a website called the dropzone.org and i i put the interviews there and i i created a virtual museum which was like a first of its kind and instead of the artifacts i made the men and their stories, the, the focal point. And then I used email in the early 90s to, to gather material and oral histories, which had never been done. And these guys were saying, they were like, Pat, why don't you write a book? And I'm like, I don't, I'm not sure I can do that. And huh. I completely fell into what, I, what I'm doing now. Wow. Oh, that, yay. I hope to fall into something like that someday because you're, you're just it's my passion. I, um, you know, I haven't, uh, the way I look at it, I haven't worked in. I've been writing full time for 15 years. I haven't worked in 15 years. I love what I do. Wow. I love preserving these stories. I love the journey. It's not for me. It's not the destination. I'm not into the, you know, the final book is, is, is good, but for me, I love, I love the whole journey. I love to find I love to find the, the keystone document that I found when I found, I found the, the document that Admiral Woolley wrote about the Shoreham hotel and how Jack Taylor made that, that first swim. I mean, that, that's the stuff that, that really gets me excited. Well, your, your books are, uh, certainly a, a joy to read. And, uh, I've of course risen in esteem in my immediate family by gifting them with your books, if if anybody out there really wants to read uh, about history in a way that will inspire them to learn more, <laughs> and also just to be enraptured—I mean, absolutely enraptured—by this uh, tale that you've chosen to tell about this 
this amazing group of men in First Seals, the untold story of the forging of America's most elite unit. What's up next, if you can tell us? Or are you just taking a break and then uh, on to the next thing? Will you do another book about um, American history? Is that what you're always going to do? Or how will you sort of light upon your next uh, subject? If it, You don't have to tell us what it is. Just how do you... How do you get to the next great masterpiece of American history writing? Um, it's like everything else. It finds me. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> the, next, the next book is begins in 1774. And that's, it's, it's an extraordinary story and I'm most proud of it. It it's, uh, and, and I hope it, it helps change things too, and in, in one way or another, and it brings us to understand what some of our founding fathers and in, in what we did and where we've come from. Um, it's, it's a story about human beings, a small group of human beings that that were able to change the dynamic of history. I mean, uh, unexpectedly, it's it's kind of a reoccurring theme. Um, that I stumbled across, I think. Um, and, uh, it's, it's exciting. I, I love, I love it. I, I spent years researching that at the same time I, I did, I wrote first seals. So, well, it's, uh, it's gotta be awesome. And we'd love to have you back to talk about that book. We'd also love it if you could make me a T-shirt and or an entire bedroom suite that looks like the cover <laughs> of your new book. Uh, folks, if you, if you haven't seen the cover of this book, go to, obviously, my page or just type in, probably smarter just to type in First Seals and uh, Patrick K. O'Donnell and go to Amazon. And that way you can see the cover right before you purchase the book. Or I believe you have a website, which is First Seals Book. Dot com or yep. go to Amazon, like you said, or my website, uh, patrickkodonnell.com is also out there. And that's, um, that's going to have, uh, the, you know, excerpts from the book. This, this cover is just, wow. It, it is really an awesome, uh, awesome graphic. Uh, one last question. How far can you swim underwater? Not very far. Okay. <laughs> right. I do. I am uh, uh, Patty certified, but I'm not very good. Uh, I got you. Well. <laughs> I found out the hard way that uh, <laughs> that I that I that I don't equalize very well, and uh, I'm somewhat claustrophobic in small quarries that are filled with uh, polluted water and wrecked automobiles. Oh man! Hey, just real quickly. <laughs> I know I said that was the last question. That's the other thing I'd like to point out uh, to people is that you actually go out with people in military and you've actually been in, uh, was it Fallujah, I believe? Yes. Um, in, in three days, I'll be at Camp Pendleton and we will be celebrating our, the 10th anniversary of the Battle of Fallujah. And I was a, uh, I was a combat historian. I was a civilian, probably the first, uh, the, ever happened. I was a civilian. I ended up fighting in a rifle platoon in Fallujah with a Marine, Marine platoon. A Marine Fallujah, a platoon that actually had the, the suffered the highest number of casualties of all platoons in the Battle of Fallujah and with the 
with the battalion 3-1 Lima company that, that had the highest number of casualties. Nearly everyone, uh, half or two-thirds of the battalion was wounded or many killed. And uh, it's it'll be bittersweet, to say the least. It's many guys that I haven't seen in 10 years. Um, there'll be the joy of of, the, of reuniting with people in the fellowship and the brotherhood of being with people that that you can only experience, you can only have that ex- that feeling when you're when you survive combat together. It's a special brotherhood and a fellowship. And then, of course, with it, there's also a very haunting reality of of many of the scars and ghosts of war. Yeah. Well, your book on the subject is is just awesome, and uh, you know, uh, best to you and, and to all those servicemen as you have that uh, anniversary. And anytime you want, just just give me a shout or an email, and and we would love to have you call back and uh, talk about anything you want to talk about. Thanks, Tom. I always enjoy your 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 interviews. They're probably some of the best that I've ever done in the sense that you're. You read every line of the book, and you your questions are at a different level than just about any other host. And I, I really always appreciate coming on your show. It's really an honor and a pleasure. If I only had one word to describe this new series, it would be excitement. The drama will be about people caught up in a critical moment of life and death and presented as realistically and creatively as possible. We're tremendously excited about it. We think you will be, too. You're listening to The Tom Gully Show. like to thank Patrick K. O'Donnell. As a writer myself, I can't tell you what a thrill it is to have an author and a historian of this caliber on the program. Uh, I can't even believe it. Thanks again uh, to Mr. O'Donnell. And remember, go to Amazon and just type in Patrick K. O'Donnell, whatever's there. You will be uniquely informed and entertained by his work. Uh, And get first seals today. Trust me, it it's absolutely fabulous. Folks, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share this on your various Facebook pages. Trying to spread the word means, well, trying to spread our little show here. We'd appreciate it if you'd like the Tom Gully Show. Not moi, not me, but the show on Facebook too, if the mood strikes you. And of course, there's always the TomGullyShow.com. That's where you can find everything about the show. If you're on a mobile you should go into the bottom of the, the mobile app and just put see the website if you're not just looking for podcasts because that's where you can get better access to all the features of the website. But we always encourage you to subscribe on iTunes for free because if it is free, it is for 
me. Follow us on Twitter at Atomic Palooka 2 so I can increase my clout and cred ratings because if I get enough points, we're all going to go to the aces. That'll do it for tonight. I'm out of here. I got to go talk to some people. I'll talk to you much later. Each night, Jay Johnson. Oh, boy, Jay Johnson, jjohnsonmusic.com. Each night he brings us in with the truth wagon. And each night taking us out is the Hitman Blues Band with Catch-22 Blues. Go to hitmanbluesband.com or .net. If you go to the .net address and you sign up for the mailing list, and believe me, you're not going to get hammered with emails. They hardly ever email. You're going to get nine free blues songs from the Hitman Blues Band. I strongly encourage you to do it, and I also strongly encourage you to tell them Tom sent you. That'll do it. We will see you next time. Well, the bug can't lift a twig for a dog that's nothing big, but he don't want to. And the dog can't grab a cat, a raccoon can do all that, but he don't want to. And I dream of you at night while you hold your baby tight, but he don't want to. You can see it in his eyes from the way he tells you lies, he don't want you.